Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough, CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors. Today's guest is an award-winning global entrepreneur, proven CEO, worldwide motivational speaker, best-selling author, Hollywood film producer, the producer of a Grammy award-winning jazz album, the executive producer and an Emmy award-winning television show, executive producer and star of the groundbreaking new TV series, Going Public, the chairman of the Global Entrepreneurship Network. Please welcome Jeff Hoffman. Jeff, it's great to have you. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure connecting. So this podcast is about leadership, Jeff. And my favorite question to ask is, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. Oh, I love that question. (laughs) Because uh, uh, when, you know, if you ask a child, well, this actually happened. Uh, Daughter says, uh, are you the boss? And I said, yeah, why? And she said, what do you do if you're the boss? I said, what do you think I do? She said, the boss is just someone that tells everyone else what to do. That is the conventional belief, right? You're the boss, tell people what to do. In fact, um, I learned the hard way that uh, real leaders don't create followers, they create other leaders, right? So that is the, the biggest, I think, misconception is that as a leader, it's really your job to tell people what to do and to know what to do. And the truth is the the best way to lead is to train, prepare, develop leaders that rise above and beyond you. Um, and so you get to the point where they're smarter and better than you <laughs> and can do things that you can't anyway. That's how you, that's how you grow. Uh, but anyway, that's it. Uh, it. It's that leaders, real leaders don't create followers. They create other leaders. That's the part no one told me. Yeah. And it's, um, I'm so happy you brought that part of leadership up because it's something that I've been focusing a little bit more on recently. And of course, you know, as I think about my journey so far, and I'm wondering if your journey was similar, I didn't have that mindset going into leadership. And I'm curious when in your <laughs> leadership journey, did you realize that this is truly about building up others and training versus me standing in front of the room giving orders? Sure. I, I think that one of the turning points for me <laughs> was, well, I'll just tell you the story. Um, because one of my employees, I knew, I'm a software engineer by trade, Greg. So uh, that's the training I have. Uh, and what's interesting to me already by, with, by saying that is a lot of business owners, CEOs, founders, are they came out of the domain, right? I was a, an engineer and now I run a software company. I was a construction. Now I run a construction company, whatever. So their training is in the task at hand, but not, in fact, in things like HR, for example. And so I'm running down. One of my employees comes and goes, Jeff, you better come quick. Two of your employees are arguing, and I think they might fight for real. So I'm running down the hall, and I was like, wait a minute. What am I supposed to do? He goes, I don't know, dude, but you got like 10 seconds to figure it out. And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about HR. I don't, I've never taken a class called how to stop an argument, right, or how to calm people down. And I'm thinking, geez, why didn't I have that class? Mm-hmm. So when I was thinking about that, that is when I realized 
I need somebody that actually does HR for a living. That's the day I realized I need to hire an HR person. And when I hired her, I discovered that I was, even though I'm the owner of the company, Greg, and the CEO, I was slowing her down, not helping her. Because I would say, okay, explain all that to me. And she'd say, geez, I can just go get it done way faster, right? I'll talk to you later. So I started to realize that if I just, her name was Angela, hired a bunch of Angela in all the functional areas that that just know all the stuff I don't in their domain and can go get it done, my company would hit at a velocity that I could never hit if I'm always the one in the way because they always have to come explain or get permission from the boss. So it's when I hired an HR professional and she was so above me skills-wise that I realized I should do that for every major part of my company, except maybe one. Each of us is good at one thing. I was good at marketing. Everything else, there were people way better than me. That's well said. Um, You know, it's interesting as you think about the entrepreneurial journey and you're spot on, you know, we start as experts in something, then somebody else is willing to pay you for it to do that work. And then you get one or two clients and all of a sudden you pick up momentum I'm wondering, Jeff, in your experience, you just articulated that story of when you realized you needed to build your team. What are other indicators of the time to start building your team? Well, uh, first of all, um, you know, and I know this is cliche, but you don't build your network when you need it. You build it every day of your life, right? Everywhere that I go, I am assessing talent. When I'm meeting somebody at a conference and I'm talking to somebody in a restaurant, I'm constantly asking them, so tell me your story. Tell me a little bit about you. And I'm noting, sometimes literally I grab my phone and take notes afterward. Um, I'm noting people's strengths, weaknesses, passions, interests. And so I always have in my head people I would love to have in positions I'd love to have them in. So every time there's a, you know, a, a, a change, a pivot, anything in the world or growth, I already know who I want on my team, not the day I say, okay, now, and by the way, that HR story was another place I learned it because the day I said, man, I need someone to handle situations like this. I had no idea who to turn to. So I learned that lesson that I build my network all the time, every day. So I tell even solopreneurs this, the answer to your question, Greg, is from day one. Because what happens is people start telling me that they, um, that they uh, are doing really, really well with all of their, uh, you know, they're running their business. It's a small company. They're doing a lot of things. They're wearing seven hats, I guess is what I was trying to say. And they're doing pretty well. And that's dangerous because even though you're doing pretty well, unless any of your, your listeners in this podcast goal is to be average, which I'm hoping is not, um, that's fine if you just want to do well and be average. But if you're trying to do really well, Right. If you're trying to succeed and grow and scale and get to the next level, um, then you need to be looking even before you can afford it. You should start building in your head the team you need. As soon as I can afford a CFO, I'll hire this guy. As soon as I can afford someone for HR, I'll hand it off to this to this woman. So I think you're building it all the time right from the start, way before you even need it. You know, the light bulb that popped on, Jeff, when you were talking through that. And I'd love to ask you this question. Um, does that hold true for fractional executives as well? Do you see that as a tool for team building? 
Okay, that's a Greg, not only another great question, but really valuable information because nobody told me that either. And when, because I'm an engineer, my uh, finance is not my strength and I was struggling, but I was doing okay, which like I said, is dangerous. I don't want to do okay. I want to do well. And I'm not a finance guy. Uh, and so then I start, people said, you should hire someone to run finance. But I looked at, you know, at my finances and I couldn't afford that person. So I was thinking it was a binary decision. I can either afford to hire someone or I can't. And no one ever said the word fractional to me. Mm. And the way I came about it, so the answer is a, a resounding yes, a higher fractional help uh, instead of no help until you can get full-time help. Mine came in a funny way. I was telling a friend of mine who was a finance officer at a big company. And he's like, tell you what, Jeff, he said, I'll stop by every Wednesday night for a couple hours and handle all your finances. You only have to pay me a couple hours a week. And he said, I'll do it in the evenings once a week. And that way you have a professional handling your finances, but you don't have to pay me full time until someday when you can afford, offer me a job and I'll quit mine. And that's what wound up happening. But when he said, I'll stop by two hours a week and take care of this, do your books for you. I was like, why didn't I think of that? Fractional is very effective. Yeah, you know, that same task, those same tasks probably would take you 10 hours, yeah, 15 hours, absolutely. and then he comes in at two hours. You, Jeff, you mentioned, um, you know, wearing seven hats and doing well as being dangerous. Uh, and I completely agree. Any other aspects of business or entrepreneurship that you deem sort of dangerous? Like, like if you're in this situation, you should be, your, your antenna should be up. Yeah, I, I, I would say, Greg, there's probably two of those. One of them, I was actually given a TED talk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange of all places. And I uh, started by, we had a whiteboard and I started by writing down the three most dangerous words in business. And what I wrote down, very similar to what we just said was, we're doing fine. So if you ever look around and you're comfortable and you kind of nod and said, everything's going the way it's supposed to, already that is the day you should start saying, okay, What's going to come? What am I not seeing? Right. Um, you know, what could happen, whether it's competition, whether it's markets, whether now we all learned uh, whether it's market shutdowns from 9-11 to COVID. None of us had ever asked the question, what if the whole world changes tomorrow morning? What would I do differently? Um, so I think that when you get in that groove, which is what you're aiming for and things are comfortable and you're doing fine, that's the time to start what ifing, saying, OK, this is good for now. Uh, but what happens when things change? How do I anticipate them? And, and how do I get ready of that? So I think my answer is whenever I get too comfortable, that worries me, right? Because now you're also not really innovating. When things aren't great, you're problem solving every day. When things are, are going kind of smooth, you're less innovative and you're problem solving less. So you have to push yourself to do that. So I think that's a question to ask yourself. Am I pretty comfortable? Are things kind of rolling along? Because then maybe I'm sitting back now in my chair and I'm a little less innovative than I was when I was worried about stuff. That, that It's good to have a little bit of that worry about what's next or what could happen next in you. What were the other two words you put on the whiteboard? Oh, no, I put we're doing fine. That was my three words. Oh, the three. Those, Got it. Thought, yeah, those three were people. the three words of danger uh, was... Because I would see, and I was giving examples all the way back to companies like Kodak, right? And, and really, the experience I had personally, I wasn't around then when the digital camera came out, but I was definitely around uh, when MP3s were invented, 
because I was taking a break from tech and I was working in the music industry. And I was talking to CEOs of the major music distributors in the world. They were selling CDs for a living, right? Everybody bought, that's how you bought music, CDs. And I went to them and I said, hey, how's it going? And they said, great, we don't need anything. We're selling millions of CDs. And I said, right, but there's this little thing that just came out called an MP3. They're like, whatever, don't care. We're making millions. And none of those music stores are around anymore because guess what? Neither are CDs. And not one of them. When I, And I met with probably half a dozen major executives in the music biz, and not one of them would even, would even listen to me. Uh, and it turns out the music industry failed to invent the iPod, and they failed to invent iTunes because things were going great. They were just, they were doing fine, and they just weren't looking. So valuable lessons. Certainly. And you could close your eyes and remove the company name and insert a handful of others <laughs> that, that weren't willing to, to make that change or be that innovative yeah. when they were doing fine. Yep. Uh, you know, I have another one. It's a little more subtle, but <laughs> it was a lesson I learned because you asked, well, you know, if you, if you, as one of the, your listeners, find yourself in this situation, and this is a subtle one, but it's real that I learned. And my question for your listeners is this, are you begging people to buy your product, we call that sales and marketing, right? <laughs> Which is begging people to buy my product. Or are people calling you and begging you to sell it to them? And that's something you have to be really honest about. And I'll tell you where that got to me. Because today, right, what I do for a living is I listen to people's business ideas and pitches. I advise companies now. So I listen to their ideas and their pitches all day long. And people are explaining, they say, hey, you know, we invented this. And I say, that's great. Who wants that? And they say, well, we'll see. We're about to launch a go-to-market strategy and a marketing campaign, and hopefully people will buy it. So that's the norm. That's one way. But I here's the flip side. When I created, early on in my career, I uh, missed a flight in an airport because the line was more than an hour long to check in. And I went home to create a solution to check in. And you know, when you go to an airport now, those check-in kiosks are in airports pretty much everywhere. That was my first product. And when I created those kiosks and demoed the first one, every it felt like every Friday, airlines are calling me. Hey, can you take our credit card and ship some of the machines? And I was like, can you let me stop calling me so I can finish testing them? <laughs> Everybody was calling me and saying, please take my money. I want your product. And I was like, okay, that's different, right? I don't really... Instead of me begging you, can I show you my product? Will you please buy one? Once people saw it, they're calling me and saying, will you please take my credit card? So I want I want everybody listening to be honest. If you're in a situation where you spend all your time trying to talk people into buying a product, are you in a situation that once you see it, they're trying to talk you into selling them one? And if you're not in the latter, maybe there's something else you could be doing with your life. Maybe you could find a product or a service that people keep calling you and saying, I need exactly that. Please let me have some. So going a little bit deeper in that, Jeff, um, and thank you for providing that product to the airports because it's changed <laughs> many millions and millions of lives. Um, but going in that former, right, where you're spending, the entrepreneur spending time and energy and they're in the grind of selling widgets or selling whatever. And it's just one week after the other, what is some advice you would give on how to make a change out of that? Because you do have the mortgage coming up and you do need to put food on the table and you do need to do all these things. 
And sometimes by default, we end up back into, well, let's just make another sale. Let's go chase another deal. Talk to us about the transition or how to begin that transition. Um, you know, that, that's a, one of my favorite words for entrepreneurship is discipline, right? Actually, Greg, I, I think this, the single most difficult word for any entrepreneur to say out loud is no. Uh, and I'm guilty too, early on. It's really hard to say no to stuff, especially when somebody is willing to pay you for it, right? And, and so, like you said, a lot of things pop up and you're like, let's just take the money. That's what you're talking about, right? That's right. Uh, There's so many opportunities and there are opportunities for money and that's what you need to survive. But I will tell you this. I did a a pretty a years long kind of study of the companies that really scaled. And I learned a really valuable lesson. And I got to these are people that I got to talk to along the way. Um, Early on, uh, people forget that uh, Amazon for years only sold books. And while Bezos' plan was to ultimately be the marketplace of every of everything, he had the discipline to say the word no to anything but books for years until he absolutely crushed it. So that's the problem you're talking about. People are saying, hey, man, if you'd sell me a watch, I'd buy that. And he'd say, that's great. I'd love to take your money, but we sell books. If you don't need a book, please move on. That's what we sell. He had the discipline to do this, to become... And, and I spoke to him back then. There weren't a lot of us uh, launching internet companies at the beginning. And we would talk. He would say this. He would say, I got to be the best darn bookseller on the planet before I sell anything else. And Tony Shea back in the day, uh, when Tony, when Zappos was just selling shoes, Tony told me, I need to be the best darn shoe seller before I sell anything else. So I learned that lesson that having the discipline to say no which means you might be scrounging in your couch for coins to eat dinner that night. There is a sacrifice. But if you keep saying yes to every little side thing and any money that comes in, you're so distracted, you're spread so thin, and you're a jack of all trades and you're the master of none. And when you become the master of books or shoes or whatever it is, when you become the recognized leader in something, then everybody wants to do business with you. And that's the strategy that Bezos executed. It was only a book, but you and I wanted to buy anything we could from Amazon. It was only shoes early on, but a lot of people wanted to buy handbags and earrings, right? Uh, Later from Zappos. And in our case, back in the Priceline days, um, we started out, we were selling a lot more things. And our version of that was, we're really good at hotels. By the way, I call that your, your gold medal. What's your gold medal product or service? You know, every, everybody knows what theirs is. Turns out for us, our gold medal product was not selling cruises. It was not selling travel insurance. It was not selling luggage, right? And it wasn't really early on even selling airline tickets. Hotels is our gold medal. That's what our team knows. That's what we can beat all the competition in. Just like Jeff said, there's nothing I don't know about selling books how to source them, how to market them, et cetera. So winning a gold medal at one thing takes discipline and sacrifice. But all the companies I looked at that took off, that really grew, Greg, none of them really grew by selling four different product lines right from the start. They grew by being a recognized gold medalist in something, which is hard. You know, Jeff, the companies that I'm talking to nowadays, that is very pertinent information. I, I'm seeing a lot more companies reverting back 
to sort of their core competency. You know, you came out of COVID, we survived. We've got all these things that we're doing. Well, let's just focus on the one thing that we do really, really yeah. well. And and the one, the thing that the phone's ringing for. That's right. And, and not get distracted on all these other um, shiny objects. But I like the way you said that the gold medal service or the gold medal yeah. product. Pick yours and stick with that. Shifting gears, Jeff, you, you've alluded a little bit to your past. I'm curious um, about your story. You know, how did you go from systems engineer to talking to me today? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because part of it, this kind of, my mom gets a kick out of this. Um, my mother used to constantly tell me, you're the most impatient person on the planet. Well, uh, it turns out that's as good as it is bad. <laughs> uh, and in fact, actually, I remember from my whatever eighth grade uh, English teacher, that's the definition of a Shakespearean tragedy. It's that the thing that is your strongest trait is also the one that's going to kill you. So what that means is my impatience is what caused me to say, oh, my God, I'm not going to stand in another freaking airline line ever again and stand here for an hour. I'll just fix it which is what led me onto the path of the kiosks, right? So a lot of the things I've developed over the years is because I couldn't stand the current solution. It was irritating. And my impatience, I was like, I'll just fix it myself. That's part of entrepreneurial DNA. I didn't know that at the time. It was just impatience. But I'll tell you, Greg, the flip side is my impatience is going to be the reason someday I'm going to start walking on the crosswalk before the light changes and I'm going to get hit by a bus and die. They're going to say, dang, he was so impatient, it killed him. Um, that's Shakespeare's definition. But uh, I think that's where it started was that uh, uh, I would notice that everybody, when there's a problem, everybody in the planet complains. And I would sit there and think, we're all just going to stand there and complain or somebody to do something about it. And for me, the roots of that are my mom, uh, because my mother was always the one, my little mother, uh, she's tiny, and she was always the one that would just go over and fix whatever the problem was that everybody was complaining about. So I would watch my mom say, well, we can stand here and talk or somebody can do something. And it wasn't somebody, it was her. I was like, what are you doing? And she said, no one else is doing anything. I'll fix it. And so I, I started to really, that was a super good example uh, that most people are happy to stand there and complain and do nothing about it. But somebody fixes every problem. And if you're the one that fixes the problem everyone's complaining about, there's a lot of benefits. I have a friend that Lars, he's a Danish that was tired of being lost all the time. And it's, everybody hated paper maps back then and complained about them. And so did he. But one day he's like, look, I'm going to stop complaining. I'm going to be the one to fix this. And Lars created, well, Lars created Google Maps. It just wasn't called that. They bought that technology. Google bought it from him for like nearly a billion dollars wow. because Lars said, Everybody's complaining about being lost and paper maps are hard to use and harder to fold. I'm just going to come up with a better way. So the people that fix the problem that they realize everybody's complaining about, including themselves, those are the people that you see on TV and you're like, oh, man, I had that idea, too. Right. Except they actually did something and you just talked about it. I learned that lesson by watching my mom. I love the shout out to your mom. Um, I've got a similar shout out to mine and even my grandmother, who was four foot two and a, <laughs> and a pistol whipper. She was amazing. Uh, but Jeff, I, I really appreciate that connection between our weaknesses and our strengths. And without one, you can't have the other. Um, you talked about your impatience. Are there other 
traits, weaknesses that you had as a kid, as a young adult that people are saying, stop doing X, Jeff, that turned out to be your superpower later in your career? Yeah, except uh, I have to say this. People didn't tell me to stop. I had to figure, which I wish they had. I had to figure it out because it wasn't working that way. Um, And the answer to that, and and I'm really glad that you asked that question as well. The answer to that uh, was since I've been a CEO since I was 24, and I've been kind of in a, quote, leadership role for a long time, you know, even in school, I was president of the class in high school and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I didn't know I had that what you and I started out with that conventional belief that if you're the captain of the team, right, they're looking up to you and waiting for you to tell people what to do if you're the president of whatever. Um, so I kind of thought that and the skill that I did not develop then that I wish I developed earlier was listening skills. Mm-hmm. Later, uh, as a CEO, there'd be a big decision to make. And I would go on, I would use this term. I would tell my team, I'm going on a listening tour. They're like, what? I said, I'm going to leave my office this morning. I'm going to probably be sitting in eight other people's offices throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, I'll come back and sort of synthesize everything I heard before I say a word. So they're like, hey, boss, what should we do? I said, well, I'm going to speak last, not first. I'm going to go collect input from all of you. And then I'm going to speak. So I did learn that that listening and later that became really helpful because customers would say, they say, man, you're the only vendor or company we've ever dealt with that we feel like really hears us and knows us. And I was like, right, because I go on these listening tours, right? My product team comes and says, got a product idea. And I say, okay, present it to me, but I'm not going to say a word for a week because I'm going to spend the rest of the week on the road showing it to customers and listening. And when I get enough feedback, I'll come back and tell. then I'll tell you my opinion. So that was it, Greg. It was developing listening skills and listening habits that I did not have and that I did not know I needed. But once I got them, everything changed. Digging into the the discovery process of that, Jeff, um, how did you discover the benefit of listening or or when did you, you make that transition or really invest in that skill? Talk to us about the Um, before and the the before and the after, like when did the light bulb go on for you for that? Um, light bulb went on in a, uh, case where when I first started exploring it and I, I was doing this program that I called a day in the life. And the reason why is because of one of my businesses that failed miserably. And I'll tell you, Greg, the, the business was early on, there was this brand new, really cool, but super technical thing called the internet and no one knew what it was. And so I was like, Whoa, wait a minute with this thing. Uh, and here's what happened, the, the actual story. I'm parking at a mall, running to get something, and I see these two women come up in an SUV and start unloading. One stroller, a diaper bag, one kid, right? Then another stroller, then another seat. And I went in, exchanged something, came out, and they were just finally getting every going into the store. I was like, oh, my gosh. And I stopped and laughed, and the lady's like, what? And I said, it took you longer to get your kids and everything out of your car and go into the mall than it took me to run my errand. She said, yeah, I hate going to the mall when you have little kids because of strollers and diaper bags and blanket. And so we were laughing about that, but I was walking along and thinking, wait a minute, with this new thing called the internet and these moms that it's really difficult to go to the mall, 
maybe they could just order the thing if they know what they want on a computer and never have to load and unload all the kids. So that was my target audience. Okay. Here's, so we launched and built a product for them, you know, online shopping when it was brand new and lots of stay at home moms with kids came on our website, clicked around and not one person bought anything. Ultimately I shut the business down and failed, but I went and out and started talking to some of the moms and just for fun, Greg, I'll tell you the actual conversation. I, I sent emails because we could see them. And I, I said, hey, it's my company. I see you didn't buy anything. Um, if, if you wouldn't mind, can I call you just to learn? And most people will never reply to that. But a couple did. And this one mom, I call her. And I say, I saw you on the website looking at our products. How come you didn't buy anything? And she said, I'm not going to type my credit card into your website so you and your nerd friends can buy more gaming computers or something. I was like, we can't see your credit card number. She said, what do you mean? I'm typing it onto your website. And I said, we use RSA 128-bit encryption, which everyone in my office and all my friends know what encryption is. And she said, I'm sorry, I speak only, I only speak English. And I said, well, I, that is English. It's called 128-bit encryption. She goes, I don't know what that means. I said, what do you think encryption means? And she said, it's how Egyptian people bury their dead. I said, yeah, no, that's not what encryption means. And she said, then I don't know. And I sat there feeling like a complete idiot because I am not a stay-at-home mom and I'm building a product for a stay-at-home mom, right? And so that was the day. I was like, from now on, I better spend a whole bunch of time listening to these people. And so now when I get a new idea... I was doing this TV show with these CEOs and the host said, what's the first thing you do when you have a great new idea? And all the other CEOs say, I get my team and we go into the whiteboard in the conference room. And I said, I get my keys and I go into the parking lot. And they're like, what? And I said, I immediately get in my car and drive over to talk to stay-at-home moms because it doesn't matter what I think anymore. It only matters if I've listened to them well enough to know what they know so I can deliver something the way they'll buy it because I failed miserably the first time without listening. So that that incident, this mother saying, I have no idea what encryption is. I was like, who doesn't know what that is? She basically, speaking for all these stay-at-home moms, said, um, all of us. And I was like, man, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I love that, Jeff, because it ties back to the commentary we had earlier about sales and marketing and chasing your clients versus yeah. them chasing you, right? If you spend the time listening and understanding what they need, and offer that a solution to that need, the phone will ring, they'll knock on your door, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Instead of guessing what you think they need and then trying to tell them that that's what they need. They'll that's tell right. you, but not if you're not there listening. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love for you to talk to us about the Global Entrepreneurship Network. Ah, sure. Um, so we have a fundamental belief uh, that uh, entrepreneurship is the skill, skill set of change. But more importantly, if I could change the word, I wouldn't even say entrepreneurship. I'd just say self-determination because that's what entrepreneurship it's about, is about. It's about designing the future that you want instead of the present that you have. And because I was in travel, right, with, you know, our companies like Priceline, where we were uh, working all over the world and traveling a lot, I was meeting people all over the world and discovering really quickly how uh, everybody 
um, has the same goals. Turns out that people all over the world are just trying to do the best they can and take care of their family and the people they love and care about, right? And as you go up that scale, they want to do that for their village, their town, their country, right? Um, everybody's got these same goals. And when I started to realize that, um, what I realized in parallel was that entrepreneurship is not a job. It's a mindset. It's a mindset we've been talking about. It's a mindset of saying, I'll just fix this myself, right? I'll fix this problem. And it's the mindset, it's the skill set of knowing how to organize teams, how to listen, all the things we've been talking about as well. So one day for me, it occurred to me that if I could teach people the attitude, the mindset and the skill set that, that makes entrepreneurs successful, they could all solve their own problems and they could take care of themselves. So the Global Entrepreneurship Network was launched with a super simple mission statement to help anyone, anywhere launch and grow a venture, right? And so it's not about money or business. It's about people being able to achieve that independence and self-determination. And we are now working in uh, 200 countries, uh, teaching the skill set of entrepreneurship so that people have an opportunity. And I get it all the time. I remember the first time it was a young man in uh, uh, Senegal, West Africa, that sent me a note and said, we all live in huts made out of mud. There's 20 families in my village. I want them all to house, have houses, jobs, food, running water, electricity. And he said, I actually have some ideas. I just have no idea what to do next. And I was like, that's exactly the, the, what we exist for. If we could teach that young man how to launch his business, put it together, you know, create a business, launch it and grow it. He probably, in the end, by the way, Greg, I have been mentoring this young man for many years, seven years now. He has 350 employees in seven West African countries, and his company provides them houses to get out of their mud huts with electricity, running water, and they pay for them in payroll deduction through his company that finances them. So he wound up changing 350 families' lives, and all, but it was his idea, not mine. All he needed was help because he has no idea how to launch a business. So that's what the Global Entrepreneurship Network does, is we teach people working in 200 different countries how to take your idea and turn it into a business so you can take care of yourself. That's very powerful. And thank you for that, that work that you're doing. You bet. I, we have an amazing team. So I asked you my favorite leadership question. Uh, my second uh, favorite question is, Jeff, if you were going to give a younger version of yourself some advice... What advice would that be? Um, ooh, that's a good one because there's <laughs> there's a lot of pieces, but I'll tell you the one that comes to mind when you say that. And I wrote this down one day too. I'm on a wall on the side of my office. I write down kind of the lessons that I've learned so I don't ever forget them. And one of the things I wrote down was that we get our advice from proximity, not relevance. And I wrote that down because the people you listen to most are the people that you listen to only because of proximity, not relevance. It's your husband, wife, brother, sister, friend, girlfriend. They're all around you. And because they're around you every day, they're the ones you're listening to by definition. And they're the ones that telling you that the idea you thought was good is stupid or the idea that you didn't think was good is a brilliant idea or that you're not good enough or whatever it is. 
or it might be a false positive. You're brilliant. You should do that. And you're, in fact, never as smart as you think you are. So we're getting all this advice from proximity and it's not relevant. And the reason I wish I'd learned that earlier is because a lot of times I listened to all the people around me that I thought were smarter than me and they were the elders and the adults and my own parents or whatever. And it turns out they were wrong because I was listening to the wrong people. I had a day one time where my mom was telling me why she thought an idea didn't make sense. And this was the epiphany moment, Greg. I was suddenly like, wait, wait, wait. Mom, you're sharing your experience with me from all the internet companies you built, right? She goes, what? I've never built an internet company. And I'm like, exactly. So why on earth am I listening to you? I need to go find somebody relevant, somebody that's done the things I want to do and listen to them, not the people around you. So that's what I wish someone had told me because I wasted a lot of time listening to, uh, you know, if if it's your parents, for example, or your spouse or whatever, those people love you. They're just not qualified to give the advice they're giving. Uh, So I went out and I found a guy. This is my advice for picking a mentor, by the way. Don't pick somebody because they're in the industry you're in. I want to do stuff in the airline industry. I need to find someone in airline. Pick a human being that you want to be like when you grow up, no matter how old you are today. Um, There's somebody that you want to be like, and that person should be your mentor, right? Because knowledge about how the airline or any industry works can be acquired through education, right? But character and integrity and values and the kind of person you want to be, uh, you can't teach that in the same way. So you find somebody you want to be like, that you admire and you look up to, and that's the person you listen to. So when I realized that, that one day, because all this advice people had given me turned out to be wrong, and I was like, oh my God, I should have trusted my instincts, but I listened to everybody else. So I looked around in my community for someone I wanted to be like when I grew up, his name's Roger. And I just started cold calling the guy. It took three months to get coffee with him, but it worked. And when Roger, who goes, I want to be like him because he's done the stuff I want to do with his life, when Roger would say, that's a good idea, I believe that. When Roger would say, I don't know, man, I believe that too. That's great advice. Um, and what a gift to find Roger. Jeff, I, audience member wants to get in touch with you. Are you on LinkedIn? What's your social media <clears throat> preference? Sure. So my LinkedIn is actually, uh, you know, it, it's uh, LinkedIn. It's the LinkedIn.com slash Jeff Hoff. Um, is me. But if you Google Jeff Hoffman Priceline, it goes to the right LinkedIn profile because there's other people with my name. Um, Instagram is Speaker Jeff Hoffman. Um, Twitter is Speaker Jeff. Uh, but my email and my website are even easier. And it's just jeffhoffman.com. And my email is just jeff at jeffhoffman.com. Fantastic. And we'll put those links in our show notes uh, and a lot of the other things that we've referred to uh, today. Jeff, what amazing advice and insights you've provided. The Picking the mentor is on top of my list. Um, I love how we started off our call when we were talking about the leadership from a telling perspective versus a building perspective. I, I'm wholeheartedly in agree- agreement with that. You've been an amazing guest. Um, I, I know our listeners have enjoyed the show, and I look forward to spreading our good word. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate you having me, man. And I look forward to staying connected. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.